Welcome to Eastern Europe's Minorities in a Century of Change, a podcast on the history of minority experiences in Central and Eastern Europe during the 20th century. This series is part of the Institute of Historical Research Centennial Commemorations, Our Century, Looking Back, Thinking Forward, and has been organized by the Study Group for Minority History. It was made possible through the help and support of the British Association of Slavonic and East European Studies and the Stanley Burton Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Leicester. The study group is a forum devoted to researching minorities in national and regional histories of Central, Eastern and Southeast Europe and promoting closer scholarly collaborations. For more information, please visit our website at studygroupforminorityhistory.com. I'm Olena Palko, the co-convener of the study group. And today it is my great pleasure to welcome Francis King from the University of East Anglia and Timothy Blauveld from Elias State University in Belize, Georgia. This episode is sponsored by East Center at the University of East Anglia. Francis, Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Elena, and welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Francis King. I'm the co-director of the newly founded East Center at the University of East Anglia. And uh, we're very pleased to have uh, with us today uh, Timothy Blauvelt of the Iliocet University in Tbilisi, Georgia, who is the author of a recently published book, uh, Clientelism and Nationality in an Early Soviet Fiefdom, The Trials of Nesta Lakoba. Um, uh, without further ado, Tim, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Can you please start by telling us a little about yourself and how you came to be interested in this particular aspect of history? Uh, well, thank you. And hello, Francis and Olena. And thank you for the opportunity to participate in this in this podcast. So uh, I am a academic, but also a, uh, a teacher and uh, an NGO person. And I have been working in the Caucasus for, for a really long time, for, for more than 20 years. Um, the... the I guess the shortest story is is that my background is uh, was in political science, uh, and in the mid nineteen nineties, I became interested in Russia, the former Soviet Union. Uh, I was studying on uh, study abroad programs in in Russia in the mid nineteen nineties at the time when the first Chechen war was going on, and and I became interested in the periphery in the Caucasus. Uh, it also helped that at that time, um, the only thing to eat in, in Russia in the mid-1990s was cabbage and potatoes and cucumbers. And uh, somebody, uh, we had the opportunity to go to a Georgian restaurant in St. Petersburg. And that was sort of this explosion of, uh, of flavor and made me realize that uh, even though I had heard about Georgia, that I wanted to learn more about the Caucasus. And, and so I wanted to write a dissertation about the North Caucasus. Um, and when it came time to do that, uh, that was around the time of the second Chechen war that became impossible. I had also done a, a Georgian language class at Indiana uh, University, where they have this summer workshop on bizarre languages of the former Soviet Union. Um, and so I, I decided to make my dissertation project about uh, about Georgia, but it was it was a in in the context of political science, although the theory was was really from anthropology, this Mary Douglas theory of group grid and looking at culture, uh, political culture and, and nationalism, the effects of hierarchy and collectivism. And so that brought me to, to Georgia and the Caucasus in, in 1999, 2000. Um, I then came back uh, in 2002 as a Fulbright lecturer. And then I started working in my current job, my other job as the director for American councils, um, which administers educational and cultural exchange programs on behalf of the State Department uh, in the Caucasus. Uh, and so uh, being here 
uh, I started, uh, I was asked actually to start teaching political history of the USSR, Tbilisi State University um, around 2005 and 2006. And I continued doing that and later was invited to join the faculty at Ilya State teaching that subject as well. Uh, and gradually in the context of that, I became much more interested in archival history. And I wasn't trained as an archival historian. It's really something I had to, to, to learn on my own, uh, but learned through doing in part because one of the amazing things of, of being in Georgia was this tremendous access to archival sources. Um, and especially at that time, by the mid 2000s, so access to the to the party archive, to the KGB archives, um, and uh, in doing that, uh, I was also interested in Abkhazia, which is the subject of my book. Um, I had written a number of other things. I was also particularly interested in the career of Lavrenti Beria, and that that plays a central role uh, in this book as well. Um, but being in the Caucasus. Uh, especially being in Georgia um, and from the late 1990s, Abkhazia was something that was sort of unavoidable. It was very, very visible, even though that, that's not what I wrote my dissertation about. It was something that one really couldn't escape. The city was, was full of, of refugees. You know, the, the war had only ended a few years before. It was a traumatic uh, thing for, from the Georgian perspective. And it was also a, um, Abkhazia was kind of itself a really exotic part of an exotic periphery and, and someplace where most Georgians couldn't and can't go there. Only uh, specific refugees from the Georgian district of Abkhazia are, are allowed to go in. And I was sent there uh, regularly uh, in the mid-2000s and not, not as a conflict zone tourist and not as a researcher, but in my role as an educational bureaucrat and going there to do interviews for educational exchange programs. Uh, and it really is quite a striking place. I mean, I would describe it as uh, the, the subtropical corner of a northern empire. It really is not the image you have of the Soviet Union. It is, it's really uh, on the coast of the Black Sea. It's subtropical, palm trees, eucalyptus. It's really quite beautiful, but also a place that, since it was uh, an unrecognized statelet, uh, that was half empty, half destroyed, uh, yet had these resorts and you know uh, embankments and restaurants, all of which seems kind of like a, a resort town that was perpetually out of out of season. So it, it it really had that that interesting aspect to it. And you could also see that this is a place that had uh, economic and political power behind it exactly because of that subtropical element to it. That it's a place where citrus fruit, also tea and and in the earlier period tobacco uh, grew in, in abundance and that that gave tremendous economic policy uh, uh, power. But it was also a place where there were dachas and resorts. Uh, all of the first secretaries in the Soviet period built resorts there, beginning with Stalin and the resorts of Khrushchev and of, of Gorbachev. And of later, you could see that this is a place where elites went. Um, in the earlier Soviet period, it was a resort place for the, for the higher elites. Later in the 60s, 70s, 80s, it, it became a, a, a site of, of tourism for the population at large. But that very fact that you had elites coming there meant that you had face time, you had proximity to power, and those things uh, sort of struck me. Uh, the other aspect here, of course, is the my interest in, in clientelism or patron-client relations, and, and that's something that living in the Caucasus for any period of time, you really get the sense that this is even now an important aspect of, of how society functions. Um, so I had become interested in Abkhazia um, in 2007. I published the first article that I had been working on, which was really archivally based about uh, this role of Abkhazia as a place for power broking and the role of this, um, the FaceTime that 
political elites had uh, by uh, virtue of all of the important figures who were coming to visit and how that um, how that happened during the, the course of the Stalin period. So this was uh, patronage of power in the Stalin period and really covered from the 1920s all the way up until uh, Stalin's death and just after in the 1950s. Um, I return to this a lot because there are a lot of archival uh, files that were really interesting about Abkhazia. I wrote um, uh, an article about the um, the anti-collectivization uprisings that took place in 1931, uh, about the uh, the formation of, uh, of Soviet leadership in 1921 at the very beginning. Uh, I wrote one that uh, was about nationality policy and especially indigenization in, in the 1920s. Um, and I was intending or considering writing more chapters about later periods, uh, 60s, 70s, and I actually did that, uh, and putting this all together and making a book about Abkhazia and the Soviet period, sort of a more general Soviet Abkhazia. But in doing that, I dug further into the files for the 1920s and the early 1930s and find, found some really amazing things, investigatory files, uh, autobiographies, um, there was one particular file um, in around 2010 in the Georgian archives. We discovered the the Asoboy Papkia of the Central Committee, the special files of the of the Georgian Central Committee, and they there are these white files bound in white. Uh, and they're really kind of completely random. The things that they talk about in one file was simply labeled Nestor Lakoba, and and it had the details of part of a, a fragment of a political conflict from 1925. Um, the other thing that uh, drew me to focus specifically on the 1920s and early 30s and the period uh, of rule of Nestor Lakoba, about whom we will speak, is the, the personal archive of Lakoba himself, which uh, is in the Hoover Institution in Stanford University. Um, and this is really kind of an unusual thing. Um, it was apparently uh, buried by Lakoba's wife in the floorboards of their apartment in 1937, just before she was arrested and was killed in the terror. Um, a, a relative 20 years later returning from the gulag dug it out of there. And somehow between that and uh, uh, and, and now it ended up in, in the Hoover Institution. I'm, I'm not entirely sure what, what happened there, but it is a, a remarkable collection of documents uh, that Lakoba himself gathered and collected. A lot of them are, are drafts for speeches or letters or correspondence that he's sending and that he's receiving. Um, a lot of this has been used uh, in biographies of Beria and in other places. Um, Stephen Kotkin makes a lot of use of this. Um, and especially there are documents that uh, are sort of low-hanging fruit in the sense that they're typewritten, they're cataloged, uh, it's clear what they are, they're dated. There's a mass of those documents though that are a complete mess in various handwritings that are completely out of order. Uh, and so in 2017, I was able to go to, to Stanford and I, I photographed this whole collection. It's, uh, it's three boxes. Um, the first two boxes are documents. The third box is, uh, is a set of photographs and uh, they're actually quite famous photographs. A number of them you would probably have seen although they're often unattributed. Uh, there's photographs of Stalin on vacation there's a famous photograph of Stalin and Beria, and there's one with Beria holding Stalin's daughter, Aleluyeva, on his knee. Uh, and those all come from that collection. So what I the situation I found myself in is one in which using a kind of triangulation, being able to put together these 
documents from the Lakoba archive together with the uh, the documents from the the Georgian Party archive uh, that they told a story and that uh, uh, told a story that really came together only if you have both of those things together and are able to put them together. Um, and what that showed was it seemed to be a tremendously rich, obviously incomplete, but really demonstration of a number of aspects aspects about clientelism, about how governance could function on this periphery of the periphery, but also the interaction between clientelism and the role that played in the early Soviet state and nationalities policy and what that meant for a small ethnic group, which had gained the status of being the titular ethnicity uh, in that territory and how those two things interacted, ethnicity and patronage. Yeah, thanks, yeah. Um, with, with a lot of these uh, characters like Lakoba, their careers, if you like, split into two quite neat parts. There's the pre-revolutionary uh, career as the underground party party worker, the you know, some cases professional or semi-professional revolutionary. Then there's the change in their fate after 1917 when they find themselves in power. Um, in Lacorba's case, in particular, it's it's complicated by the uh, uh, unusual status of uh, Georgia and that particular region in the in the Civil War period. So I want to, if you just, um, if we take, take it through sort of chronologically, first of all, just say a few, a few words about what sort of person Lakoba was when he, when he came to the revolutionary movement, what kind of, what kind of milieu was he operating in, what sort of things did he do uh, mm -hmm. prior to 1917 that gave him this springboard to prominence subsequently? Mm -hmm. So Nestor Lakoba was an ethnic Abkhaz. He was from a, a village called Gudauta, which is sort of the ethnic center of the Abkhaz population within Abkhazia itself. Uh, and he uh, became a revolutionary. And he also attended the, the Tiflis Seminary, like so many revolutionaries did, sort of the school of revolutionaries. Um, and because of that and his activities, uh, mainly in, in the Caucasus and Batumi, and he, he was active as well in the North Caucasus, uh, it allowed him to be tremendously well connected. So he knew everybody uh, in even before, and in the revolutionary underground, he, he knew Stalin bragged that he was one of those few people who could call him Koba to his face. Uh, you know, he, he knew Orjanikidze and, and Kirov uh, and people like that. Uh, um, he um, had, I mean, when, the information we have about his biography comes from either the hagiographic stuff that was published during his time uh, or through his own autobiographia. And, and so it's sort of hard to often separate the reality from the way that he's twisting this. But he sort of sets himself up as uh, somebody who um, was, even in his school and seminary days, was leading agitation. Um, and the reality of that, of course, we, we, we don't really know. But it does seem that he... Um, was tremendously charismatic and that he was, in addition to being tremendously connected, he was able to mobilize ethnic abhas within his particular region. Um, and I think part of this is um, sort of competition with, with different groups within Abkhazia, even different social classes. And the um, in, in Abkhazia, like other parts of the periphery, what happens before and after 1917 in the context of that is, is obviously a lot more complicated than one ethnic group versus another and one that's revolutionary and one that's not. You know, partially this is uh, competition or um, conflict within, even within the, the, the Abkhaz group between peasantry and, uh, and uh, 
various aspects of the old elite, the middle class, the emerging middle class, uh, the aristocracy, um, and so forth. But he does seem to set himself up as February 1917 happens, and in that period uh, between February and October of 1917, to position himself uh, as, as a Bolshevik and, and to create Bolshevik cells, although how the Abhas actually understood Bolshevism is also kind of questionable. They apparently took oaths in the traditional oath taking place. Um, and they they use the, the Abha's uh, concept of kiaraz, which means in Abha's kind of means like krugavaya uh, paruka um, in Russian, like, like mutual support. Um, but they sort of set this up. And, and again, part of the uh, of how this gets set up or interpreted as, as Bolshevik hagiography uh, is, is sort of um, gets dictated by the way the story gets retold in the 1920s and the 1930s. But he does seem to have set up this at least credibly revolutionary group within Abhazia. And that in the context of, uh, of what's happening in the Caucasus uh, during the revolution and after, um, where you have the civil war to the north, things are more or less calm in the South Caucasus, and you have the emergence of these independent republics and the independent Georgian Democratic Republic that exists between 1918 and, and 1921. And that republic is, is really quite remarkable for a number of reasons and had very high aspirations. It was dominated by the social democrats, the Georgian social democrats, um, who uh, were uh, in the process of creating a, a very progressive constitution. The entire three-year period of that republic was um, one in which they created a constituent assembly that also served as the parliament at the same time that its various committees were actually drafting the constitution. And it was one that many have seen as a precursor to the social democratic uh, conception of socialism uh, of Scandinavian Europe and so forth that would happen later on. Um, the provisions of the constitution said had included things about uh, economic rights as well as political rights, about working hours, about uh, about healthcare, about about education, and things like this. But one of the areas that the leaders of the Georgian Democratic Republic were never really quite able to square the circle was um, how to make their ideals fit with actually running a state. And this constitution actually never existed in reality. It was it was uh, taken by Parliament. The a few days before they got on the ship and sailed away for France as the Bolsheviks were, were closing in on them. So it never functioned as a living political document. Uh, and one area which was particularly troublesome was the, the desire on the one hand of the Georgian authorities to create a unitary state, and then the other hand to give autonomy to particular regions. One of those was Abkhazia. The other ones were Batumi, Ajara, and also uh, Zakatal, which is now part of Azerbaijan. But how exactly that would function was never quite clear, how you could have this unitary state and still give autonomy. And in the process of these three years of discussions about it, the Abkhaz um, became increasingly agitated uh, and annoyed about this, and the, especially this sort of nascent emerging uh, nationalist middle class, um, with what they saw as constant foot dragging on the part of the Georgians about real commitment to what autonomy would mean in that sense. And that gave more and more authority to the radicals and to the Bolsheviks. And it's in that context that uh, Lakoba and his grouping, uh, mainly his friends, his family members who were uh, representing this Bolshevik movement, uh, agitated against the Georgian Democratic Republic. And they, uh, as often happened in the periphery, uh, they sort of became allies to the Bolsheviks as the Bolsheviks were consolidating their position in the civil war. And in 1921, the, the Abhas uh, supported the Bolsheviks in their invasion of, of Soviet Georgia. Um, and so for that reason, when the Bolsheviks came to power, they looked at the Abhas, even though 
this is a really tiny population of a tiny place. And you should say, just to emphasize how small the places we're talking about are. In Georgia, as a republic at that time was about 2.5 million. It would go up to about 5 million in the Soviet period. Now it's about 3.7 million. Abkhazia is a tiny strip of that in the northwest corner, uh, which ranged in the Soviet period between 200,000 and 500,000 people. So very, very small place. Um, and the Abkhaz were a, a minority even within that territory. Um, in the in the mid-1920s, early 1930s, it was about 26% of the population uh, of Abkhazia itself, and Georgians made up about 30-32%, and, and uh, the other percentages were made up of a, a mix of different uh, ethnicities, mostly Russians, Armenians, Greeks, and even Estonians. But uh, in part because of this assistance that the Abkhaz had lent to the Bolsheviks in this Sovietization of Georgia in 1921. Uh, the uh, decision was made that this territory would be created, I think in part a response to the aspiration of the Democratic Republic to create an Abkhazia, an autonomous republic, um, uh, to give it this status of a, of a titular republic. So in, uh, in March of 1921, Abkhazia became a Soviet republic. So the Soviet Abkhazia, in the same way that there was Soviet Russia, there was Soviet Abkhazia. Um, and uh, there was a lot of discussion about this, what this status actually meant or how that it, important that is, what that means for Georgia, why they did this, and we can get into that perhaps later. Um, ultimately, uh, after the first year, the decision was made to change that status. Um, and in part, this has to do with the complexity of, of what the Bolsheviks were trying to do in the Caucasus um, in the very beginning in 1921-1922. And, and this gets into the question of the so-called the Georgian affair in 1922. So uh, the Georgian Bolsheviks who had Sovietized Georgia um, were adamant that Georgia and all of the three republics, Armenia and Azerbaijan, should exist as autonomous republics. Um, the Stalin faction in Ordronikidze, uh, who was really leading the Soviet invasion of, of the Caucasus, um, really wanted a centralized state. And this is what the so-called Georgian affair is. And it plays a really important role in the ultimate decision about what form the Soviet Union is going to take, right? If it's going to be a, a Soviet Russia with different uh, sort of appendages to it, or if it's going to be a republic. Um, the, the Georgians win that question in the sense that the Soviet Union becomes a, a federation of union republics. Uh, but they lose in the sense that the three republics of the South Caucasus are joined together in one federation. Um, and so uh, stripping them a lot of their autonomy, it even strips their right to secede from the USSR, which they don't get back until 1936 with the new constitution. Um, but Abkhazia then in this new arrangement enters the Transcaucasian Federation through Georgia and has the status of a Dogovorna Respublika, or a, a treaty republic, um, which uh, as far as I know has no equivalent anywhere else. But it's a very complicated federal relationship, because on the one hand, you have the Soviet Union, uh, which gets formed in 1923, and then you have the Transcaucasian uh, Federative Republic, uh, then you have the Georgian Republic, and then you have Abkhazia as this uh, treaty republic entering the Federation through Georgia. Ultimately, that's very confusing. It would create a lot of the problems we would have later about arguments about what status belonged to what uh, territory. Uh, it also gave tremendous opportunity, and especially for the Abkhaz elite who realized that they could play these different federal levels off against one another um, at various points. It, it almost sounds as if Lakhova sort of took a gamble on the Bolsheviks and Russia prevailing in the power struggles that were raging in, uh, in the South Caucasus in the, during the Civil War. I think there was any kind of element of that, which which side was it more expedient for him to throw in his lot with, or was he, do you think, uh, a seriously committed Bolshevik as distinct from those nationalists and Mensheviks in Tbilisi? 
Yeah, that, that's difficult to say. I mean, he is somebody who seemed to, uh, for a long time, have a good sense of where the wind was blowing. Um, one interesting thing, and something that I focus in the early chapters of the book, is that there is a competition between different Abkhaz elites, and particularly the other big figure is a guy named Ephraim Eshba, uh, who was really even more important than Lakoba in the in the very beginning. Um, and they sort of come into a confrontation, a, a conflict. And it's really over, I think, the difference between the symbolic aspects of status and what you can actually get from this situation. Um, and so Eshba is really the one who is driving uh, was the recognition that, that Abkhazia should be a Soviet republic uh, and that it, that it should get this status and retain this status. And he's the one who really pressed with the leadership in Tiflis and Adjornikidze to get that to, and to maintain that kind of status. There's a great uh, thing I found in that that's included in the book where um, from the autobiography of Eshba, where he's talking about the, the session uh, after which they have just declared that there's going to be a Soviet Abkhazia, right? Because it's, Abkhazia has never existed um, as, a, as a state before. You know, there was a medieval kingdom of Abkhazia, but uh, that the, the aspiration of the, Soviet, of the Georgian Democratic Republic in 18 to 21 was to create this, uh, this territorial status that had never existed and they failed. And now it was being created by, by the Soviet state. And so there's this great passage where Eshba says, I just came out of the session where it was decided that Soviet Abkhazia was going to be created. I had the document in my hand and I knew it was top secret, but I saw Prince Shervashidze, the elite who had been head of the commission who failed to create an independent Abkhazia. And I couldn't help but show him the document and show him that we under Soviet power have created this structure, that Soviet Abkhazia uh, exists. But I think Lakoba really understood that what this new system meant, ultimately, uh, status was important insofar as it gave us certain guarantees. Uh, but the reality is we should think not so much about these political issues as a form of status themselves, but rather what we have to gain from that and how we can game the system, how we can take advantage of, um, of Soviet nationality policy uh, in order to extract what is necessary for, for our own grouping. Yes, yeah. Now, clientelism is, of course, a, a central feature in your, in your book. But the, I think the distinguishing uh, feature of clientelism is that um, there's a, always a difference between what your formal position is and the actual power that you, you, you wield. And the, the, the classic example here is Stalin, whose formal positions were uh, solely in the, in, in the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, but he ruled the entire Soviet state in effect. So uh, before we talk about uh, the actual way in which Lakoba ruled or um, played politics uh, in Abkhazia, could you just tell us briefly about what formal position did Lakoba have in, in the 1920s when he was mm -hmm. the, uh, the most significant political figure in uh, Abkhazia? So Lakoba is the boss of Abkhazia, and they mm -hmm. even come to recall, they come to call the whole republic Lakobistan, mm -hmm. and, but he's not the party boss. And that's an interesting point. And it, I think it does say something about how nationalities policies worked, uh, especially in the 1920s. Lakoba was the, he was the chairman of Sovnarkom, so the, uh, the Soviet of people's commissars. So essentially the, uh, the cabinet of ministers, what would later in a bourgeois sense be called, or as it, the name would later be changed. He was head of the government. Between 1921 and 1930, there were 10 different secretaries of the local party committee. None of them Abhas. Only by 1930, Lakoba was able to get his person into that position and kept them there until 1936, until his, almost until his death. Um, to work out this sort of uh, um, 
stabilized situation for, for himself. So his his power was was in the, in the government government institutions, where where I think this um, indigenization made it easier. Um, where you know for the party was always much more centralized than that. Um, I think it is important to say a bit about him and how he did things, which which are interesting and and I think are relevant for for what happens later. Um, Lacoba, even though he is the boss, uh, he's sort of different, very different from the stereotypical Bolshevik or Stalinist um, stereotype of, of a leader. He's small, uh, kind of quiet. He's not one of those guys who's yelling profanities all the time. Um, he uh, was known for uh, his pithy uh, statements and using Abha's folk sayings. He was hard of hearing and, and wore a big clunky um, hearing aid that almost looks like a, a, a radio from the 1930s with the headphones and everything. Um, and again, he was tremendously well-connected. And that goes back to his pre-revolutionary days. But I think that begins to get into how and why being the titular elite in a place like Abhazia gives you this face time and this ability to interact, this proximity to power uh, that uh, comes with being the boss of, of this resort zone where absolutely everybody uh, is going and coming to. So what I think Abhaz what, what Lakoba realizes though, or, or what the game is, and this is really, I think, what is at the center of, uh, of why I wanted to write a book about nationality and clientelism in, in the periphery like this, is, um, is sort of what the underlying game is here. Uh, that they're playing, that 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 is 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 going on, and and it seems to me that once the party had made this decision that they are going to ascribe nationality uh, both to individuals and to territories, uh, and that they are going to pursue this policy of of karenizatsi, right, of, of indigenization, that means that they have to recruit elites who have the ascribed nationality, who are the titular nationality for each of these territories. And that means that they have to make a choice about who is going to fill that position. Once that decision is made, then they are dependent on the success of the people they've chosen. I've compared this here in, uh, in the book, I think, and, and elsewhere to um, sort of the situation that I experienced so much in the NGO world, uh, which is what they call uh, grant capture. So if you're a grantee, uh, you have a big grant to give. Uh, you have a lot of power, and you can decide what are the procedures going to be like. What are the uh, what are you going to require from the applicants? What you know, how difficult is the application process going to be? What you know, what hoop, hoops do you have to go through in order to get that? Once you've made that choice, once you've selected who the grantee is going to be, your success depends on the success of who you've chosen on the grantee, and that suddenly gives them a lot of power. Right? They can push back and say, "We need we need more funding for this. We need higher salaries. We need more SUVs or whatever whatever the requirement is." And I think that's a similar kind of a situation. There are different potential elites that exist or that even have to be created. In many cases, they partially exist or even don't exist at all. So they have to be the 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 individuals have to be selected. It's the the, the principal agent problem. Um, so once you have selected those people, they then have this power to extract things from the center. What the game is for the local elites is on the one hand to satisfy at least minimally the requirements of their patrons above, but they also have to keep their consistent their constituency uh, more or less happy. But the key thing, and this is really sort of the core of the book, is how is to Maintain your irreplaceability to prevent the emergence for, or alt, of an alternate elite grouping that could pen, potentially re, replace you. 
And it's never a question just of individuals, right? This is never just an individual thing, but it's a question of groupings because uh, in that kind of a clientelistic system, it's not about the individual. You can't just take one person and replace them with another and expect to have you know, all the same kind of authority and things to function the way they did before. Things function because they are personalistic. So that means if you replace somebody at the top, you have to replace their entire grouping, or at least a large part of it. So the game then becomes one of, uh, of maintaining that irreplaceability and demonstrating to those in the center that whatever you get up to, it's going to be more difficult to replace you uh, than it is to keep you in power. And here too, this is uh, this aspect of ethnicity and the need to select representative titular elites in the ethnic periphery, where territories, again, are defined ethnically. Uh, that defines the, the, the criteria of selection and restricts the criteria uh, of selection. Yeah. In relation to Abkhazia, there's a further sort of layer of complication that you've got this, this triangular relationship. Abkhazia has a relationship not only with Moscow, which is presumably the main uh, supplier of resources, but also with Tbilisi as, uh, as, it's, as, it, as it's part of Georgia. Um, how did Lakoba negotiate this really rather tricky and delicate uh, sort of balancing act between uh, two different kind of power centers, both of which might be sort of interested in, uh, in or be instrumentalized in bringing him down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in, in some issues and in some particular periods, it's even a four-way game because it's not just Georgia and Moscow, but it's the Transcaucasian Federation, the Georgian Federation, and and the and Moscow. And um, this has always been the case. This is always the case with these autonomous territories that are not in the Russian Federation. It is an, an, is an interesting aspect in this period and throughout the Soviet experience that um, autonomous territories, republics or oblasts within the Republic, uh, within the Russian Federation, uh, most often have fewer privileges and advantages though, than those outside of it, exactly because there's this trilateral relationship that they're always able to play um, the centers off, off against uh, of one another. Uh, and that definitely gives a resource. You see this happening in different ways in different situations. And some of those are political. And a key thing here is how Lakoba is able to, uh, to maintain his core patrons and both within the Georgian leadership and the Transcaucasian leadership, which are in turn tied into the central leadership and with the ascent of Stalin. And, and I think that's, that's one reason why this is more important than it might seem is because of the uh, the central role that Abkhazia plays in the Transcaucasus network that emerges in the 1920s and the central role that that plays uh, in the rise of Stalin. It's obviously not the only uh, aspect of, uh, of Stalin's rise, but it's an important element of his power, this tremendously powerful Caucasus network that gets created uh, mainly under Orjanekidze, but that uh, Abkhazia and, and Lakoba are become a, a crucial element of. You'd also see this happening in economic senses too, and I speak a lot in the book about the various machinations that take place involving tobacco uh, in the 1920s and the way that the, uh, the Abhas on multiple levels are able to play the trade organizations of these different institutions, the Transcaucasian trade organization, the purchasing organizations, the Georgian organizations, uh, in order to manipulate and get the better prices for, for tobacco. Yes, yeah. The the status of the Abkhaz, particularly within, if you like, Bolshevik uh, mythology, was Lakova able to use that to uh, any, any great extent, that the Abkhaz could present themselves as having been loyal at a time when the Georgians were by and large disloyal or, or mm -hmm. suspect? What role did that play in the, in the machinations, if any? That clearly played a role in this 
uh, in the question of status and, and why Abkhaz, who are not even a plurality in this tiny republic, should be the titular nationality. So that, that clearly plays a role there. Um, and there is certainly, I think, an aspect of, of divide and rule here, that creating this Abkhazian republic uh, was, I think, uh, you know, there were a lot of motivations for why territories were defined in the way that they were. But I think one of the elements of this is as a kind of restraint against the Georgian Republic. And even though uh, Lakoba has this very strong support with Orjanikidze and the other leaders uh, in Tiflis, there is, and you see this growing over the course of the 1920s, uh, increasing resentment on the part of cadres, of Georgian cadres, to the privileges uh, of Lakoba, the privileges of the Abhas. Um, and it's, it's something, obviously, that nobody would come out and say directly, and you can't say specifically that these are people expressing uh, nationalist sentiments, but you sort of, you get the sense of them, like in the uh, shouts from the hall in the, that are given in the, the discussions of, of, you know, uh, of various tribunals and things. Uh, the other thing which I think is, is, is also relevant and, and probably should be emphasized a bit more is that uh, Abkhazia was also put forward as an example of a small republic of the East, that was part of this larger uh, project of, of demonstrating um, to the decolonizing world, to, to the Muslim world, Abkhazia was at least partially Muslim, um, uh, that the Soviet Union had their interests in mind too, that this was an example of, of a small, tiny Eastern Republic uh, that was gaining these, these privileges. Um, and keep in mind too that Lakoba, um, in part because of his connectedness, was, was part of this project from early on. He was uh, he and Eshba, those, both of those guys were sent to the um, the, the Conference of Muslim Toilers of the East in Baku in 1920, and Lakoba and a bunch of his, uh, of the, the other Abhaz figures surrounding him were sent to uh, to Turkey uh, to meet with Ataturk uh, in 1921. In fact, they were they were in Turkey when Sovietization of Abkhazia took place. They weren't even in Abkhazia. They were summoned and recalled and put back in place and then put forward as the leaders of the new Soviet Abkhazia, even though they haven't actually been there when the event took place. Yeah, going back a bit, you, you mentioned the uh, tobacco um, business, the tobacco industry in, uh, in Abkhazia. And in your book, you discuss in quite, quite a lot of detail some of the corruption that was uh, attendant on, the, the, on, 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 on tobacco trading. Um, how important would you say those sorts of dodgy economic relationships were in, 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 in uh, uh, building and so uh, maintaining these, these clientelist networks and ultimately in kind of weakening them and undermining them. Mm -hmm. What role did that play in the, whole, in the whole system? Yep. Well, tobacco obviously is tremendously important, um, and especially in the first half of the 20th century. And, and uh, Abkhazia was a major producer of tobacco. By the Second World War, it was one of the largest producers of tobacco in the Soviet Union. Uh, and this gave opportunity, it gave opportunities for rents. It's mm -hmm. difficult to see how the local to center connection specifically works, because nobody talks about that. And there are, you know, sort of vague accusations and complaints, uh, or complaints about, again, playing off these different trade organizations uh, against one another. I do a sort of a deep dive in one chapter about a particular region called Sebelda, uh, which is an Armenian populated region, not far away from Suhum, the capital. Um, which becomes a scandal. It becomes a major issue. There's uh, a, one family of Armenians, the Tapchans, who uh, sort of run the place. Um, and uh, they go to such extremes that it, it draws enough attention that ultimately there's a show trial in, in 1928. So that sort of exposes a lot of the things that are going on. Um, that's probably an extreme example, but probably very similar things are, are happening 
are happening everywhere. But that really sort of demonstrates first how you have a, a kind of continuity of, of clientelism because there are um, complaints from the peasants who write about what things were like before and they describe how this Topchan family uh, had weaseled its way into the Tsarist administration, into the roles of police and, and the sort of government structures and had controlled the tobacco trade and had been involved in extorting uh, tobacco companies and even assassinating the heads of tobacco and representatives of tobacco companies. And then when the Soviet regime comes, they are able basically to do the same thing, to make their way into the trade uh, cooperatives uh, to um, make their way into the tobacco cooperatives and especially to become the uh, the sorters who, def who define what quality tobacco is and how much money the peasants should get for each bunch of tobacco they bring in, and also making their way into the party committee. Um, and uh, one thing that sort of demonstrates, uh, well, in addition to these, these investigations where they show exactly this kind of, kind of criminality that seems a lot more like the, the 1990s than the Soviet period, where you have uh, really extortion rackets, where you have uh, assassinations, uh, kidnappings, arson, um, and really this kind of racket where um, they undervalue the tobacco as it's sold to the peasant uh, and then uh, manage to extract it for the peasant for a lower price and then are able to sell it on for higher prices. There is one particularly interesting letter from the Lakova archive, uh, which is written in a very barely legible hand in pencil on the back of an envelope, which is from one of the, the heads of this Topchan family writing directly to Nestor Lakova. And he kept the letter. <laughs> but the letter is saying, basically, uh, they're investigating us. Things are getting out of hand. I really need your help. I can't survive without your assistance. And so it really shows this direct connection um, that it's not just something happening somewhere, uh, you know, in the periphery, uh, but that they do have these direct connections to the very center in, in Abkhazia. I think ultimately, though, uh, those kind of machinations begin to lose their effectiveness as things become more centralized and with the beginnings of collectivization uh, from, from 1928 and 1929. So with the end of NEP, um, so those 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 two things, the end of NEP and the introduction of collectivization really narrow the, the possibilities for, uh, for that, uh, for, for playing these kind of games and this kind of racket involving tobacco. Um, and that, the problem with tobacco, the, the peasants actually don't like it um, because they can't eat it. You know, it can be profitable. <laughs> and, and in that situation where you can play these kind of games, they're willing to go along with it. Um, but when it's a question of requisitions, it's um, you know, sort of unlike the, the grain growing peasants uh, elsewhere in the Russian Empire, they can't just go subsistence if necessary, because they just can't eat the tobacco. And if they can't sell it, that's a big problem. So, I mean, Lakoba's style of rule, his style of patronage and, and all of that, was something which very much developed in the in the net period. You know, there, there wasn't, if you like, a, a war communist Lakoba. Uh, it was he 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 acquired power when when net was already already being established. Um, how successful would you say he was at uh, transferring his patronage networks and that sort of thing to the uh, the post net period? I mean, was that really the the uh, the beginning of his downfall, would you say, um, mm -hmm. uh, an inability to adapt to this, this 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 different way of doing things once the Stalin economic system was fully established, or were there other factors? Well, I think you do see a kind of learning, even in the course of the 1920s, that he's really good at top-down relationships and of dealing with his patrons above him and using this sort of Caucasian floweriness. And some of the really interesting documents from the Lakoba collection are his 
correspondence with Orjone Kidze. And, and it's obviously still fragmentary, but we see both sides and there are letters from both. Um, there's one particularly uh, interesting one where he's, uh, Lakoba is sort of waxing philosophically about uh, his friendship with, with Orjone Kidze, writing to Orjone Kidze and sort of asking himself, should I call you Vli or should I call you Tli? Now, should I use formal or, or, or informal? Um, but you really see how this, this relationship develops. And I think one of the most interesting documents in that whole collection is a letter from Orjone Kidze. Um, in 1926, so Orjan gets promoted from being the head of the Transcaucasian Federation or the Transcaucasian Party Committee to being the head of the um, the worker party, uh, the worker peasant inspectorate and the Central Control Commission. So basically, the Inspector General of the um, of the Soviet Union, right, of the party and of the government. And Orjan writes a letter where he says, "Piti to say that with a Georgian accent, and um, we can imagine you shoot and drink and shoot as much as you want. The central, the, the inspector general is in our hands now. <laughs> um, you also see that kind of correspondence developing with with Beria, uh, as Beria rises in the police hierarchy and then in the party hierarchy in the later 1920s. And one of, another of the documents from the Lakoba archive collection, which has been used a lot, uh, is the letters that Lakoba wrote to Beria describing his conversations with Stalin uh, and Lakoba recommending to Stalin that Beria be uh, put in the top position and basically telling Stalin, this is the guy. Stalin's the one, uh, Beria is the guy who can get things done. Uh, how that relationship plays out with Beria, I think, is a little different from what he expected it to be. Um, but I think here what you also have is a changing uh, relationship to clientelism uh, that takes place with this centralization with, uh, uh, into, the, into the 1930s. And, and especially by uh, by the beginnings of the rumblings of the Great Terror, I think you know one of the certainly one of the factors behind the reasons of 1937. Not the only one, and maybe not even the most important one, but one of the main factors is that Stalin exactly wants to destroy these local powers, uh, centers of power around the Union. What he in his speeches in 1937 talked about or complained about these simestva and grupirovkia. You know, he wants to get rid of those. You also have. Uh, Obviously, this change of relationship to um, purchasing and, and from the possibility to sell tobacco to the to the highest bidder within this institutional framework to being coerced into uh, targets of production under under collectivization and collectivization is a huge challenge for Lakoba because his main cl uh, client base is is the peasantry and, and so that's one of the, the key moments is this 1931 peasant uprising in the later Abhas mythology. Uh, Lakoba is able to use his connections with Stalin to uh, cancel collectivization, and it ends then. Uh, the reality, I think, is quite different, that it, it really resumed. It was sort of a more of a pause than a, a cancellation of collectivization. But that uh, those two things taken together, I think, demonstrate or, or, or underlie why this basis of power that Lakoba has created throughout the 1920s began to shake, this change of um, to the, uh, a more centralized kind of um, approach to clientelism, which is not based on local power bases, but rather on combinations of power bases and institutional bases that people like Beria and Hrushov are able to combine together to make themselves into sort of great magnets of, of patronage. Uh, you also have the changes in the um, in nationality policy that take place in the mid-1930s. So that if in the mid-1920s, you have this kind of ethnophilia of supporting all the small nationalities of which the Abkhaz were one. By the mid-1930s, the focus switches and changes. Nationality policy does not end, despite being a concession in the same way that NEP was. Um, 
it changes though, and it, the focus shifts to the larger union republics. And Georgia particularly uh, is a beneficiary of that. And I think Georgia has a particularly high status uh, in from the late 1930s um, with, as a result of these, of these changes. Another thing I, I would say about this, um, about clientelism and learning and Lacoba's approach to it, I, I said that he was really good at the patron end of things. He did have a kind of learning at the lower end of things. And, and that is also something that I think is really interesting from the mid-1920s, that if you are a local elite, you have the question of who do you, who do you trust? Who do you recruit? Who are your clients going to be? And the easy answer to that is the people you know best, your family, your high school friends, you know, the people you grew up with, people from your village, uh, kin networks. Sometimes those people can be good, but often they're not the most reliable, they're not the best. And, and so Lakoba has this problem um, that the other Abkhaz elites become really frustrated with all of these relatives that Lakoba has around him. And one of the chapters uh, that I've described as the Rif Revolt, which is based on um, a colonial war that was taking place in, in North Africa, um, in French and, and Spanish uh, Algeria, and it was in the newspapers all the time, it is about exactly this kind of a confrontation between other Abkhaz elites and Lakoba himself and the family around him. And this is sort of an attempt in combination with some of the, uh, the leaders in, or some of the Georgian cadres in Tiflis to create exactly an alternate or a rival patronage uh, network that could possibly displace Lakoba. In that instance, Lakoba is able ultimately to mobilize support within Tiflis to maintain his position. And again, to demonstrate that it's easier to keep him in place than remove him, but it comes close. And I think that's a lesson for him that he needs to find a better balance on the local level between kin and immediate family and, um, and, and the larger elite from his, from his ethnic group. Yeah, um, well, we're running a bit short on time. So I think we better proceed to the final part of Lakoba's uh, his story, his downfall. How was it that having successfully played uh, the Soviet system and sort of kept himself on top of it for the best part of 20 years, uh, ultimately um, he, uh, he lost his footing and was deposed and with it his entire, much of his entire network fell with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and again, I think part of it is is these larger processes that are going on. It's sort of tempting to look at this as a personal confrontation between Beria and, and Lakoba. Um, but I think Beria is implementing the will of Stalin in this case and trying very hard to demonstrate his effectiveness at doing what Stalin wants. And again, what Stalin wants is the destruction of these kind of networks. Even though Stalin has this great affection for Lakoba and so forth, um, the goal of, of um, this element, I think, of, of, of the terror is, is exactly to get rid of those. And that's, that's, what, that's what Beria does. So December of 1936, Lakoba is invited for lunch with Beria. Uh, he gets sick that night and dies. So make of that what you will. The assumption is that he was <laughs> that it was not entirely a, nat a natural death, although in fairness, Lakoba was having serious health problems. Lakoba gets a, a state funeral, uh, but over the course of several months, uh, his uh, associates are accused of being enemies of the people, are arrested, and then Lakoba himself is uh, declared an enemy of the people. And the final trial, um, uh, of my subtitle of the trials of Nestor Lakoba is, uh, is the public show trial uh, of the associates of Lakoba. Uh, I think only 13 of them are actually put on trial, but uh, hundreds of them are, are arrested. And virtually, as you say, the entire network, his entire family uh, is, is re removed and eliminated. 
I think this this plays into sort of the larger lessons of of what this means going forward uh, after the the Lakoba period. That um, exactly, I think, because of this ethnicization of politics that results from nationality and 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 clientelism, this combination of nationality policy and clientelism, politics gets perceived as something entirely ethnic, even though that's not entirely what it was. In the Beria group coming to power destroyed the Georgian elite, uh, and part of that was destroying the Abhaz elite. But from the Abhaz perspective. This is what the Georgians did to us. And you know, up till now, it's perceived as this, this, this Georgian destruction of, of Abkhazia. You have this later um, emergence in the post-Stalin period of uh, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, in, in the periphery and especially in the Caucasus, um, in official institutions, um, you know, all of the institutes of, of ethnography and ethnicity, of, of anthropology, of literature, of, of cinema, of unions of writers, and all of that in each of the republics. The, kind of a return to the nationalist agendas of the 19th century um, within certain limits. But part of what they are arguing about is this kind of obsession with what they call ethnogenesis, um, but also about, about territory, um, who territory belongs to. And so you have these narratives about uh, who, who, uh, who is autochthonous, as they you know, who does this territory belong to? And I think part of this is the result of this Soviet uh, nationality policy having a, a, a zero-sum definition of ascriptive identity, right? It's either yours or ours. It can't be both. It can't be shared both individually and, and, and for territory. So in these institutions in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, you have these different narratives about why territory is ours and not theirs. Um, the Georgians have a theory that the Abhas, uh, who call themselves Abhas, are not the real Abhas. They're just mountaineers who came down recently, uh, and that the historical Abhasians from the medieval chronicles were actually Georgians, and therefore it's ours and not yours. And part of the response of the Abhas to that is exactly this period of of Lakoba in the 1920s and 30s of this kind of Akkadia, when the Abhas were in charge and when everything was good, when people lived happily. And part of this involves this kind of mythologization, mythologization of, of Lakoba uh, in, their, in their telling, you know, where he is sort of like a George Washington figure, you know, who can do no wrong, who is friend to children and all these things. Um, obviously the, the, the reality is, 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 is quite different from that, but that is, is a kind of response. And even to this day, I think that um, these kind of narratives set the basis for uh, for ethnic conflict that would that would happen when the system uh, eventually shook apart. Is that first and foremost a kind of post-Soviet thing that the kind of the, the development of the of the Lakoba cult uh, within Ab Ab Abkhazia? And is it actually it actually develops from the 1970s and 1980s? Um, um, the, the writer Fazal Iskander is probably the most famous uh, Abkhaz writer, um, writes his book Sandro is Chigem and a number of short stories with sort of mythologized Lakoba. Uh, you have another number of scholarly works in the 1980s um, talking especially about Kiraz. In fact, you might even say in the 60s and 70s, there's kind of this cult of Kiraz, this uh, self-help movement in, in, of the 1920s. Um, so that, that narrative gets created. Um, and, you know, it's been said uh, by Tom Duval and others that, you know, the the ethnic conflicts of, of the 1990s are, are fought with typewriters and, and scholarly works uh, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And uh, from, from that from that point of view, the uh, the Abkhaz had a kind of head start on the Georgians who weren't in a position really to uh, revive the Democratic Republic of Georgia as uh, this role model until after uh, the, the, sort of the final years of, of, of perestroika. Mm -hmm. And it, it is interesting that for the Georgians, their sort of ideal model goes pre-Soviet. And they want to recreate the 1921 constitution. Whereas for the Abhas, their model is absolutely Soviet, right? It's the Lakoba period, the 1925 constitution. 
But I think one of, one of the, the things that comes up in a discussion that, that often uh, you often see in the polemics of the 1980s and up till now is, is you know, why, what was the basis of nationality policy, why they did this. And the theory you often hear is the, the kind of time bomb theory that um, they made these decisions about territory and ethnicity in order to create these obstacles so that in some, in, if at some point in the future these republics, or rather when in the future these republics pursue their independence, then the center will have a, a, something that they can, they can detonate. Um, it seems to me the problem with that is, well, first of all, the Bolsheviks never foresaw that future, right? <laughs> they were doing this. The whole point of this nationality policy in their perspective was exactly to get past uh, animosities of nationalism. And they thought that this would make nationalism and all of those aspects to it disappear. Um, in the future. So I don't th think they foresaw that. I mean, certainly where there was this divide in rule aspect of why they gave different territories to different nationalities and so forth. And that, that's clearly there. Um, but uh, I think, you know, having spent a lot of time with the, the archival documents, with the autobiographies, and with all of these, uh, you know, views that uh, on the, these early Bolsheviks, I think they would have been shocked and absolutely horrified to find out that the structure that they created would ultimately, 70 years later, result in bloody ethnic conflict. Yeah, yeah. I mean, are these are these political battles still being fought out to this day, at least on the academic sphere, if not uh, if uh, if if not in a level of, of, of practical politics? And uh, are we still stuck in this mm -hmm. civil war period, as far as the uh, as George and Abkhaz relations are concerned, or uh, is is there any kind of sign of people moving on and uh, finding? Either common ground or new grievances. Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's very little opportunity for Georgians and Abkhaz in any sphere to sort of interact with one another. They're really sort of completely living in separate separate universes. And um, you do, I think, not so much in an academic sense, but just in the, the sort of everyday discourse. Like if I were to go outside of my apartment and go down on the street and ask anybody uh, about this theory of the origins of the Abhaz, all of them would say, oh yeah, of course, that's that's the case. They're just mountaineers who came down recently. We firmly believe that. And probably if you asked in Suhum uh, about Nestor Lakoba, they tell you, oh yeah, he was a friend of children. And then, you know, <laughs> he was a George Washington you know, who could tell no, tell no lie and, and, and so forth. Um, I would say though that there are, if small steps, one of the Kind of positive things has been exactly an academic discourse um, and the I mean they're very small things but things funded by the, the Council of Europe to bring historians together and they would meet in usually in Turkey um, and there was publications of uh, archival documents in a joint project. Um, one of the additional complications of doing archival research on Abkhazia is the fact that in the war in 1992 the Georgian state or rather the Abkhaz state archive was burned to the ground. Um, by Georgian paramilitaries. Um, but there was this project uh, that resulted in the publication of a very large three-volume set uh, of documents jointly uh, with the Georgian uh, Interior Ministry Archival Administration, which has the party and the KGB archives together with Abkhaz historians and archivists to sort of recreate what was destroyed. And not only the public aspect of what's been published, but they've also been exchanging things and handing over disks of, of scans of, of documents because uh, you know, my, my project would have been impossible if not for the fact that everything was done in triplicate and all much of so much of this archival stuff um, that would have been in Abkhazia was, was preserved in, in Tbilisi and still is. Okay, well, I think we've come almost to the end of our time. So thank you very much. Uh, Timothy, for a, a fascinating uh, talk. 
Finally, where can people go to learn more about this, this fascinating topic? Anyone inspired by the podcast and what you had to say? Mm-hmm. Well, my book is published by, by Routledge, which means it's incredibly expensive, but the soft cover version should be coming out, uh, I think, next year, and so that should be considerably cheaper. Um, there are um, a number of, of really useful uh, academic works about, about the Caucasus, about Georgia, and about this conflict, and the, the, the go-to one always is, is, uh, is Ronald Grigor Suni's The Making of the Georgian Nation. Uh, there's a book called Familiar Strangers by Eric Scott, which I think really uh, demonstrates well, particularly this aspect of the rise of the Caucasian network and the underground revolutionary movement and in the first decades of Soviet power. Another one that is not out yet, but I think will be game-changing, uh, is a book by uh, Claire Kaiser on, on Soviet Georgia, which I, I think comes out in, from Cornell University Press in January of 2023. That sounds absolutely great. I, I, I definitely look forward to seeing them. Um, so uh, I'd like to thank uh, Timothy Blauvelt for a very interesting uh, uh, discussion and uh, Elena for uh, hosting it. And uh, I'll hand over to you, Elena. I would just like to uh, thank you both of you for this fascinating uh, conversation. And we will add uh, the link to uh, the book uh, in the description of this podcast so everyone can, uh, can find it and, and buy it as well. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Elena. Thank you, Francis.